I, I'm going to kind of narrow in now. It, there's, there's a whole load of specific topics we could look at, but one I thought was pretty important for the evangelical, reformed, broadly reformed, evangelical, Presbyterian, whatever word you want to use, culture that we live in. So I'm not speaking about how does the worldly person, the unbeliever, view sin and temptation. It's almost um, not really germane right now to what I want to speak about. But uh, the crassest form of what I sometimes hear, and again, uh, as a limited human being who doesn't have absolute knowledge of every church in every country in the world so as to make sweeping claims, I will say that I have heard this claim many times. And the claim goes something like this, uh, that we are not, uh, we're responsible for our sinful acts, things that we do, but when it comes to uh, temptations, they are not necessarily sins if we do not act upon them. And then uh, a jump is made to Jesus who was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And so the jump is made, well, Jesus was tempted yet he was without sin and did not sin. Therefore, our temptations are not necessarily sins. And so that's the sort of specific question we're going to look at tonight and and analyze a little more closely to help us then uh, look at um, things like um, sexual attraction, uh, same-sex attraction even, and so on. And that's maybe where um, questions will emerge. I I do not know. But um, we do need to uh, acknowledge first and foremost that thoughts about sins may not actually be sins. And it is possible to uh, have an apprehension of a sin that is not sinful. And we know this because God himself sees sins. He knows what sin is and yet does not sin. The holy angels behold sins, know what sin is, and yet they do not sin. The holy angels are, are infallible in their uh, ability to not sin. Even saints who have departed uh, many of the Puritans said they still have a remembrance of what their sins were because they're able to stamp God's mercy all over that, but also have now a proper holy detestation of those sins. So they know sins, but they don't sin in the knowledge of sins. Um, so it is possible to uh, know a sin and not actually sin, but there are also thoughts that are Sinful And Stephen Charnock makes a point, and one of the things about the Puritans is they write these discourses on topics that maybe you don't really think about in your local Christian bookstore. Um, I kind of chuckle sometimes when I look at their description of the book they've written. And um, Thomas Goodwin wrote, The Vanity of Thoughts, and Charnock writes, the, A Discourse on the Sinfulness of Thoughts. And these are really important topics when you think about what goes on in our minds is really mostly who we are. And so he says, thoughts are morally evil when they have a bad principle, like the stem from which they emerge. Lack a proper end. So what is the end, the goal of our thoughts? 
They lack a proper end. They are morally evil and converse with the object in a wrong manner. So Thomas Goodwin writes this book called The Vanity of Thoughts. And he tries to use lots of different words to describe uh, all those reasonings, consultations, purposes, resolutions, intents, ends, desires, cares of the mind, as opposed to our external words and actions. So what they're doing is they're, they're going to look at what goes on in our minds, our hearts, and the relationship between mind and heart is so close that one is basically assumed of the other by way of the principle of synecdoche, a part for the whole. So Goodwin starts out by saying that men usually think that their thoughts are free, that they get to just think whatever they want. You can't say certain things, we acknowledge. You can't do certain things, but our thoughts are free. So we hover around in this world and we think lots of things and think that they are free, um, knowing that our words are not free. Our words can get us into trouble, so can our actions. But our thoughts, they don't really get us into trouble. They're free. Uh, But he points out several reasons why this is wrong. And the first is because he says the law of God judges our thoughts. So in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. The language there to try and really get to the core of one's being. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the law and God specifically discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart, of your mind. But these thoughts can also receive forgiveness. That is why we know that thoughts can be sinful. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 22, Peter says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, Simon Magus, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Not just your action, but the intent of your heart needs forgiveness. So thoughts can receive forgiveness, therefore thoughts can be sinful. They can be repented of. Isaiah 55 verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There we are commanded to forsake our thoughts if they are unrighteous. And so they can be repented of. They can also defile a person. So Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's the first thing listed. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's from the heart, from the mind, that unclean, and ungodly thoughts emerge. They defile a person, and they can also finally reveal hypocrisy. Because this people, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, I'm sure you've heard this verse a number of times, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. In other words, God's word is consistently and perpetually worried 
in a certain sense of what we think, not just what do we do. God is not a God who looks on the outward man, but on the heart. And uh, you have these different quotes, and some of them are um, quite colorful. Goodwin says, Our thoughts are the first motions of all the evil in us. They make the motion and they bring the heart and the objects together, the internal cause, the external cause. They bring them together to pander to our lusts and hold up the object till the heart has played the adulterer with it and committed folly. So speculative uncleanness and other lusts, they hold up images of gods before our eyes, which the heart then falls down and worships. They present to us credit and riches and beauty till the heart has worshipped them. And it all begins from the heart, from the mind, from the thoughts. Now, when we think about the spring of sin, we have to then consider the human will. And there is what is called voluntary sin versus involuntary sin. So when we look at the will, we consider the will narrowly or strictly and then also broadly and generally. This may sound a little too scholastic, but it will help us to get to the important matter a little bit later. Regarding the former, the will considered narrowly or strictly, it refers to that which is done by a movement of the will. So an active movement of the will, a decision of the will to do something. So that's strictly the will considered there is a voluntary movement that we decide to do. Um, Think of a person who decides to go to the fridge and open it up and take something out. That is the voluntariness of the will, being able to do that. But concerning the latter, the broadly or generally uh, distinction, it refers to anything that affects the will or depends upon it. So it may not be um, us deciding to open a fridge, take something out. It may be that what is called an involuntary thought emerges in our minds, in our hearts. And the big question is whether we're responsible for those involuntary thoughts. Well, to say that we are not responsible for those involuntary, involuntary thoughts is to say that we're not responsible for our nature, who we are. And the truth is, we are always responsible for who we are and what we do, whether voluntary or involuntary. So a thought may suddenly appear before our mind without us having a long plan for that thought to appear. It just emerges. And uh, Thomas Goodwin calls them knockings and interruptions. So you probably can imagine now in yourself, you've had these knocks on the door, these interruptions into your life where thoughts have emerged and all of a sudden you're thinking negatively about someone, you're thinking lustfully about someone. It just emerges and there wasn't a plan for you to think these things, they emerged. Then there are those who actually build a plan and voluntarily decide upon a course of thinking whereby We call that voluntary. So involuntary versus voluntary. So when Stephen Charnock's writing this long discourse on the sinfulness and cure of thoughts, he says the first motions, 
such as skip up from our natural corruptions and sink down again like a fish in a river, up and down, up and down. He says, these are sins, though we're not consenting to them, because though they are without our will, they're involuntary, they are not against our nature. Not only the thought formed, but the very formation or first imagination is evil. Now, some in the Roman Catholic tradition, I would say most in the Roman Catholic tradition, had argued that involuntary motions opposed to God's law are not sins. There's a number of problems. The first is the fine line between involuntary and voluntary. It's not like we can actually ever really draw this line. That is why we basically say broadly considered everything that we think or do is still an act of the will because to will is to live. So to say, well, oh, that one wasn't my fault because that was involuntary and that one was my fault because it was voluntary takes a lot of mental gymnastics to figure out when a voluntary thought started and an involuntary thought just crept in and you go, hey, that wasn't my fault. So in the Roman Catholic tradition, they said that these involuntary motions opposed to God's law are not sins. But then the Reformed responded like Francis Turretin and said that the very first motions of concupiscence, uh, lust, desire, do not cease to be sins, although they are neither completely voluntary nor in our power. And so voluntariness is not necessary to the essence of a sin. Rather, voluntariness aggravates a sin. So there is not only a sin that we think about and want to do. There is the fact that because of our actual nature, we will have these interruptions and knockings of which we are responsible for. So to say that we're not responsible for involuntary sins is to say we're not responsible for who we are as humans. And so the doctrine of original sin is not just one whereby we say it is only Adam's fault, but we share in Adam's guilt. And so the guilt that we share in because of Adam means that we are completely responsible for every thought that emerges in our heart and our mind. And a lot of times... The thoughts that emerge, if they become more frequent and more powerful against God's law, may reveal other spiritual issues in our life whereby we are not attending to the means of grace, not reading God's word, not praying, not saying, lead me not into temptation. So the graces of God, the power of God, the word of God are are like shutting up those evil thoughts. We are putting them to death by the spirit. But the backslider... The drifter, the person who has given up depending upon God, will then inevitably find that these involuntary thoughts become more powerful. And so the responsibility may be not just in that moment, but it may be a long-term responsibility. You can't say, hey, I wasn't at fault for that thought that just crept in. It just happened. If you also can't say, well, I've been attending God's worship, I've been fellowshipping with God's people, and so on. If you take away all of those means of grace that God has offered to you, you shouldn't be surprised then to find involuntary thoughts knocking on your door more and more. It's like Halloween. Uh, My kids know which doors and houses to knock on. 
when your lights are all off uh, in our street, you don't bother knocking on the door. But when there's lights on and a party going on and music and goblins and all that stuff, they know they're going to get lots of candy. And sin is like that. Sin knows where there are opportunities. And usually those opportunities are because we've left the lights on, so to speak. We've created the environment for those involuntary thoughts to emerge. So we cannot excuse our thoughts. Now, how does this relate to temptation and sin? Well, lusting in the heart after that which is opposed to God's law is opposition to what is good. Now, when I speak of internal temptation, I'm going to give you the stages of sin. And these stages of sin lead to greater aggravations of sin. And if you've ever heard this idea, all sins are the same, I don't wish to be rude or mean or a jerk or anything like that, but that is categorically false. Not all sins are the same. A young man could look at a young lady with lust in his heart. We acknowledge that can happen. A pastor who is married with children could commit adultery with a woman in the church who is married and has children. Every aspect of the latter context aggravates the sin compared to the young man who's looking at a woman with lust in his heart. Because you have implicated many more people. You have also, as a leader in the church, used your authority in a way that is inappropriate. And so once you start to list all the sins upon sins, you see that there are different aggravations of sins. So we start with the inclination and propensity. That is the very first act of the will, either the voluntary or involuntary act of the will. It's the inclination to an unclean thought, an ungodly thought, an unrighteous thought. Then there becomes the next stage of deliberation. So what you should do is when a bad thought comes, when a sinful thought comes, you should strike it immediately, put it to death by the Spirit and have nothing more to do with it. But the second stage is when there's deliberation then about that thought. And that is via an inward or outward temptation or both. So uh, temptation may arise and you start to think about the enjoyment and whether... Uh, what you would like to do, and all of these things. It's the deliberation of the sin. And then thirdly, there's the resolution to actually sin. That is the voluntary act whereby we say, yes, I've thought about it, and now I'm going to do it. Then there's the actual act itself. So some people have a resolution to sin, but cannot perform the act Sometimes it's hindered by a providence whereby God stops them. Uh, there's been times in your life and mine where maybe you've thought about a situation and uh, you've thought, wow, you know, God kept me from punching that person <laughs> or strangling them or whatever you felt like doing. You had a resolution, but it was um, taken out of your control. But some people, for whatever reason, in the providence of God, uh, are able to perform the act that they had resolved to do. What is the next stage after that? Well, 
usually the next stage is a certain pleasure in performing the act. So the resolution to sin becomes an act and then there's a certain pleasure in performing the act. Now this can stop at any time. Someone can do the act and then immediately have repentance and ask for forgiveness and it's done. And there was very little pleasure. But usually in the act of sin there is a degree of pleasure. That is what we learn of Moses who forsook the pleasures of Egypt, of sin, and chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. If you want to exacerbate a certain pleasure in performing the act, you might say that after that there is complete indifference to the Lord and a type of backsliding begins. And usually backsliding begins after people have committed an act, had certain pleasure in the act, and so become cold and indifferent towards God. And you look at the life of David with Bathsheba, you can see these various stages quite easily. But there is something that could be even worse, and that is boasting. So you've committed the act, you take pleasure in the act, and then you boast in the act. That is stages of sin being aggravated. And I would say there's probably one final one, at least in this life, where it's worse. And that is deliberate repetition of the act that you've engaged in and that you have boasted in and that you've meditated on to be wrong. So there are many stages of sin and they can become far greater and worse as each stage unfolds. And the duty of the Christian is to go right to A, the inclination and propensity when a sinful thought emerges and deal with it right then and there. Owen says in his famous book on mortification of sin, strike at the first rising Strike quickly. And I think that's helpful advice. Now, not every stage has to be fulfilled for sin to take place. So you may not end up boasting about your sin, but you've still sinned. You may not even have a pleasure in performing the act, but still have sinned. You may not have even committed the act, but you've sinned because you've resolved to want to commit the act. Now, What about the inclination? Because that's really the so-called million dollar question. In temptation, there is what James calls an enticing desire, uh, epithymia. And this is in James chapter one, verses 14 and 15. And this enticing desire is an internal desire that is for things unlawful. It's a violation of the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And that was the issue where Paul in Romans 7, realizes he's a sinner because when it came to the outward workings of the law, he was blameless. But one thing he could not shake was the fact that he had in him a principle whereby it produced in him all forms of covetousness that only he could see and God's eye could behold. So the deliberation to sin as a disordered desire cannot be excused even if it's not formally acted upon. It may be a lesser sin than if it had been acted upon, but it's still sin. And so temptation inwardly arises from a sinful disposition, a sinful nature. And a Christian may repent of this inward temptation before it becomes an act, but the temptation itself, when it arises from a sinful nature, is still a sin. John Owen 
talks about what temptation is. He says, it is a raising up in the heart and proposing unto the mind and affections that which is evil. So when I'm using the word desire and temptation, I'm using it in the sense that it is drawn to evil. You could be tempted to something that is not evil. You know, I'm tempted to go for a run tomorrow. I don't think that's a sin. Um, We're talking about sinful desires, temptations. And he says, that which is evil, trying, as it were, whether the soul will close with its suggestions, how far it will carry them on. So temptation is something where it is before the mind and the heart and whether you're going to carry on this temptation even though it doesn't completely prevail. He says, now when a, when a temptation comes from without, when it's an external temptation, it is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil. Someone could come and tempt you and to the soul it's neither good nor evil. It all depends what you do with that temptation but you are not responsible for someone or something tempting you. We know that because in the wilderness, Christ was tempted by the devil, and it was unto Christ an indifferent thing insofar as he was not responsible for what the devil was tempting him with. But the very proposal, Owen says, from within, it being the soul's own act, is sin. So when you are tempted inwardly to something unlawful, That is a sin. And that is where we can start to make a little bit of headway then in terms of uh, things like lust and um, same-sex attraction or uh, fornication of of what goes on in one's mind and so on. So uh, Bishop John Davenant, a great theologian of the 17th century, says that although the faculty of Desire itself is not sin. We have a faculty of desire. That is why I say you can be tempted and it's not necessarily sinful. Yet the inclination and propensity of it to evil is sin. Even in one asleep when it does not at all actually incline to sin. So you still have indwelling sin in you while you're asleep. You don't stop being a sinner when you go to sleep. That would be nice. Uh, you just have some sleeping pills and you can do that 24-hour thing that I was trying in my youth. You are still a sinner because the principle, the habit of sin is still present. It's just like we call the habit of faith and the act of faith. The habit of faith is always in us. So when we go to sleep, we still remain Christians. That's also the good news. Though you're not putting forth acts of faith because you're asleep, you still possess the habit of faith so that when you wake up, you will then act according to the habit. It's the same with sin. You have a habit of sin, which leads to acts of sin. So we mortify not just the acts, but the habit. We put to death the internal principle of sin in our lives, and we repent for indwelling sin in us. So you repent not only for what you do, but you repent for what remains in you. And that is how it's dealt with. Now, Christ was tempted in every way. But did he suffer from temptations within, whereby the inward temptations Christ had were an attraction to that which is evil against God's law? 
And that's what you have to then prove. If you're going to say, well, temptations within are not sinful because Christ was also tempted, you have to prove that Christ not only had outward temptations, as in the wilderness, but he had inward temptations whereby he desired things that were not agreeable to God's law. So that's the question. Now, I think that Jesus was free from the internal desire towards evil, though the outward temptations were still real. So when he was tempted to turn the stones into bread by Satan, he wasn't tempted as someone who had just eaten at a feast. That's, we know that. Never go grocery shopping when you're hungry, right? Because you just start buying everything. So you're supposed to eat, at least this is what I'm told. Uh, uh, some of you are nodding your head, you know. Um, you eat and then you go grocery shopping and you're more, you're more sober-minded, right? And uh, you save more money and you don't do anything stupid. Um, in the case of Christ, he really was hungry. He really did desire food. He desired nutrition to be able to. And so when the devil comes, is the desire for food a bad thing? No, but there was an outward temptation. And whether he gave into that temptation or not was sinful, not because of the desire he had to eat, but because of how that temptation was wrapped up in not depending upon God. So yes, he was tempted, and yes, it did affect him, the temptation, but it was not a solicitation to something objectively evil. So he was hungry, and that's what made it difficult. So people say, oh, well then, how was it difficult for him? No, it was difficult for him because he really was hungry, but it had to be on God's terms. I think the same with beauty. Jesus was a man, and he... I think objectively would have seen beautiful women and I have no doubt he would have understood objective beauty in women which is a fact of God's creation and something his own word draws attention to in very striking ways. Rebecca and Sarah and David and so on. So did Jesus have an idea of a beautiful woman who would have been outwardly attractive in her qualities of her beauty, absolutely. But because of a principle within his heart that was holy, he never allowed himself to have lustful thoughts towards that woman because that would be sin. And he says that in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. So, Whenever he was confronted with a situation, he always responded appropriately to the outward temptation that would have emerged. And we mustn't underestimate the power of those outward temptations to somebody who was thirsty and hungry or who suffered and in the Garden of Gethsemane asked three times for the cup to be removed that he would not undergo the most horrifying thing he could ever imagine, and that is Golgotha and the wrath of the Father poured out upon him. And so he naturally desired, and in fact, it was part of his holiness to desire that, to not go through with it in a certain sense. Hugh Martin in The Shadow of the Cross, beautiful book, talks about how it was actually right for Jesus to pray, remove this cup because he should not have wanted to be cut off from the Father 
He should not have wanted those things, but then realized that he came in willingly to do God's will and so finally acquiesced to that. So when we get to temptation, the desire to eat when you're hungry is a temptation, but it's not necessarily sinful. I'm trying to be very careful about the fact that when it comes to things that do concern God's law, there is an objective morality. So homosexual lust, just as heterosexual lust misplaced, is sinful and has to be mortified. Homosexual attraction is not a natural attraction. So there's a further thing you have to make a point. Is it a natural attraction for a man to see a woman's beauty and see that it's beauty? Yes, and a woman can see. And you can even see uh, a man, and uh, I think the only guy probably safe is like, I'll say Brad Pitt and leave it at that. (laughs) And say, okay, yeah, there's an objectively, seems to be a handsome person. Um, But evaluating objective beauty is one thing. But to be attracted to that whereby a principle of internal temptation towards lust is present, that is sinful. And so the Christian faith has obviously seen uh, homosexual orientation as a perversion and its expression as a very serious sin. And so you cannot simply say, well, because Christ was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, it's okay for me to be tempted inwardly and not therefore be a sinner. That is why I think here's my issue with the terminology of gay Christian, and I'm trying to be as gentle but as truthful and forthright as God's word allows me. Um, Usually what I hear is people responding to the term gay Christian, the following, well, should I go around identifying myself as a a wealthy Christian because I've got lots of money? So you say, hey, you're a gay Christian? I'm a wealthy Christian. And then the person beside says, well, I'm actually a poor Christian. And then someone else says, well, I'm actually an angry Christian. And so you have like the seven dwarfs principle where everyone has a descriptor to really tell you who they are. And I don't like that as a first response argument, by the way. I think it has a logical force and it holds in a certain sense, although calling yourself an Iraqi Christian is, is not a bad thing because there's nothing wrong with being an Iraqi. Even calling yourself a wealthy Christian is not necessarily a sinful thing because there's nothing wrong per se with being wealthy or being poor. But calling yourself an angry Christian or a gay Christian or whatever other sin you want to list is a problem not because you can say any sin, but it's much more fundamental than that. Here's the main problem. To identify as a Christian is to have Christ's name placed upon you. And when you consider the weight and gravity of Christ's name, all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. When the triune God's name is upon you and you profess, therefore, to not only have Christ's name upon you, but Christ dwelling in your heart... That is to say that any and every other sin that is opposed to Christ does not belong anywhere near that name because that name revolutionizes and transforms everything that is ultimately significant about you. 
You are a Christian. Christ is in you. Christ is upon you. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's name is upon you. And so imagine then taking the glory of God's name, the glory of who Christ is for you and in you, and then placing right beside it something like a descriptor of your sexuality. What ends up happening is that you cannot serve two masters. You will end up hating the one and loving the other. And my fear, my fear is just as if someone were to say, I'm a wealthy Christian, I'm an angry Christian, I'm a same-sex attracted or gay Christian, is that inevitably what ends up happening is you start to rob something from the glory of the name that God has given you. And we have no business taking anything from that name that's been placed upon us because it's the name that's been placed upon us that actually channels our true identity as those who put to death every thought And we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We nail every unclean thought, every unclean desire to the cross. And we don't allow any sin anywhere near the name Christian in a certain sense because we will inevitably rob something of what that glory is. And so if I can encourage you to think about your own identity, you are a Christian. And when people make the argument about, well, then finally I can call myself an angry Christian or a lustful Christian or whatever, don't even go there. Don't go to the negative. Go to the positive of what the all-embracing, all-encompassing name of God does to any individual who's been redeemed by his love and his power and his grace. And you will find that serving one master, having one name, having one Savior dwelling in your hearts by faith is ultimately all that is truly significant about you when compared to everything else that belongs nowhere near the glory of that title. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that whatever our temptations may be, those unlawful thoughts that you would help us to put them to death, to crucify them because Christ is in us, the hope of glory and that we can do all things through him who gives us strength and it is resurrection strength, not just a mere helping hand but the glory of the triune God in us and for us. We ask this for Jesus' sake, amen.